0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and & Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show.
1: The Product Startup, Episode 39. Timpanel developed the Refinator, an agricultural machine that converts shallow, rocky soil into deep, productive soils at an economical cost. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step-by-step. I'm Philip Felica, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we talked to Farah Qureshi about designing and making jewelry in precious materials using ethical silver and gold. So make sure to check out episode 38 if you want to hear more about how she used pop-up shops to validate her audience. Stay tuned after the interview to learn how your product startup can get free airtime on the show. So let's get started. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Philip. So I'm really excited to have you on because we haven't had anybody on the show to talk about like heavy machinery and farming equipment and that type of thing. So I th- I'm really excited to talk about this niche. How did you even get started with creating a product like the Reef & a-
2: Well, Philip, it, it did actually start a long time ago in my mind um, because Australia is full of very shallow old soil types, um, some of the oldest in the world and uh, because of that they've been eroded for millions of years and um, it's rather a long explanation but basically in um, agriculture in lots of parts of the world but particularly Australia we have uh, a lot of bedrock exposed or very close to the surface and I had some of that I was farming and um, um, there was um, ideas out there but none of them were cost effective. It was just, you know, far too costly. So, um, about 20 years ago, I started thinking about it. Um, and then uh, probably only three years ago, um, I really started doing something about it and, um, started making prototypes. Um, and, uh, yeah, it went from there.
1: Um, to give people an idea of what this thing looks like. I mean, it's, about the size of a minivan, I mean, it's huge. It's essentially a, a giant roller that gets towed behind a tractor. Can you talk a little bit about what it does and what its purpose is?
2: The best way to describe the machine is that it's it's an implement. In other words, it's towed by an, an agricultural or a large agricultural tractor. And it has two main components to the machine. The first piece that, that engages the rock is a um, what we call a grate and the grate is it's a little similar to a cheese grater in that it limits the size of the rock that it pulls up it's not a ripper as such it's more of a um a grate and then the the second component is the the drum which is a ribbed roller and this is nothing new the ribbed roller but it's just a wheel and and uh helps crush up the rock um to a finer state and then The machine's designed as a multi-pass high speed. People can't believe that we go fast with this. When we say fast, it's sort of normal agricultural speeds, but, you know, 10 um, kilometres an hour or six miles an hour is a sort of a standard speed. Um, And you start shallow and you get deeper as you the more passes you do. It's cutting the rock from the top down Crushing it up and converting it into soil, basically.
1: Normally, the work that this machine would do, was that done by hand or was it done by smaller machines?
2: Well, basically, there wasn't anything except a rotary machine. There's, there's a few manufacturers in the world that have made rotary machines. Um, the Italians were very good at it um, because Italy's got lots of rocks, but they weren't really... Agricultural or such. They were used in agriculture, but um, simply because of their, the physics of the way they work, they're just too slow and costly. So basically people just put up with the rock. They either went around it or went over it or yeah, just put up with it. They didn't do anything with it. Um, it was exposed and, and limiting their farming.
1: It sounds like a massive problem. Uh, what made you think that? You know, what I'm the person that's going to solve this. Did you have any type of background in heavy machinery or design, or you know, working with this type of equipment?
2: Well, other than my 26 years of farming, no. I uh, and working with the, that soil type, um, no, I really didn't. So I just felt that someone had to do it. So and it was an interest that I had. So I just pursued it basically.
1: That's really cool. So did you end up doing some of the prototypes yourself initially and putting together some things and, on trial basis, figuring out what worked and didn't, or did you end up hiring somebody to help kind of form the design? for? You?
2: Yeah, Philip, I, I did it myself originally. Um, I, I built the first prototype or part of the first prototype, and um, it actually worked in some instances very well. But that's that was more of a ripper, and it was um, – had some serious limitations, and it wasn't until we used that that we um, went on forward. And then I decided to engage an engineer and a draftsman and um, and, and um, go on and build the, the consecutive um, prototypes.
1: It took you about three years to put this thing together, is that right?
2: That's correct yeah
1: there's definitely a, a huge effort that goes into creating something like this. I worked on something very similar for subsea applications for marine applications. there's companies that are looking to mine the sea floor and prepare it for you know all sorts of work whether it's installations of wells or things like that and so I'm familiar with this type of equipment in a way but you know under the water and it can get pretty complicated. I appreciate the level of effort that's gone into something like that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly simple machine um, that it only really has one moving part. So um, it, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, but it took a lot to get it simple is what I'm trying to say. It, it's easy to make something overcomplicated. But in, in that type of work, it needs to be as simple as possible because every moving part is a is a weakness, basically, because it's very tough work.
1: Well, you find out really quickly what your weakest part in the link is, right?
2: <laughs> That's for sure,
1: yeah. How did you reach out to this designer and engineer when you were looking to develop this thing? Did you just post a local ad or were there places to go where people were skilled in the craft of making this type of equipment?
2: Um, well, I'd in my first prototype, I bought that ribbed roller that's at the rear of the machine was commercially available already and i'd already purchased that from the engineering firm and because they were good people to deal with and you know keen to work with me i just went on dealing with them and we've got a successful partnership ever since basically they build all the machines for me now um and, um, and others.
1: You know, that's an excellent tip. And this way, there was a lower learning curve for the people that you were working with because, like you said, they were already experienced in the industry with the equipment that they were going to be integrating. And you didn't really have to educate them on what the application was because they were kind of familiar with it. Were you afraid at all that they were going to run with the idea on their own, or did you set up some sort of a partnership agreement or a licensing agreement where your idea was protected?
2: I own the patent to the machine. So, yeah, that, that bit's covered. I was never fearful of them, but that's just one of those precautions you take. I set that up very early on, and um, they were very keen for the work in any case. I know I do get some components made elsewhere that go into the machine. I've got it quite secure, but the big advantage of working with other established companies or or family businesses, particularly I, I enjoy working with other family businesses, is that like you said, you bring in that their expertise and obviously the more minds that work on a project, the better. And I've found them to be um, exciting people to work with and so productive that we've developed another machine as well. So we've gone on pushing forward to expand our production base.
1: It's really great to work with people that are knowledgeable in their field. Did you have to put a lot of money up front to start the process going or was it something that you were able to put a little bit in and then see a little bit of output come out of it and make sure that you were heading in the right direction?
2: (laughs) Yeah, um, it, it, it really was a very expensive process and developing a machine will never ever be cheap and unfortunately I couldn't, although I was contracting with the prototype machines so, not only was I earning an income with those machines, um I was also marketing the machines before I even fully developed them. Mm-hmm. So we were out there in the marketplace actually using the prototypes. people were seeing it, and in actual fact, the first production run, I was only going to build a couple of you know maybe three or four of these machines, um, and we ended up building twelve simply because People were demanding them. It was very capital expensive for that first couple of um, years to get it underway.
1: You have to no wait for that plane to pass by there. <laughs> no. You know, that's a really good position to be in because you know understand the market really well. I know you mentioned that you designed it for yourself. Was that the full intent in the beginning is to only design it for yourself or was the intent to eventually sell it to people and you just happened to be in a really good position to test out the product and know the market and the audience that you were selling to?
2: Yeah, look, I think that was my strength in that I had a very good understanding of the industry, the farming industry. and. I uh, was developing it for everybody. So we believe that this machine will be worth hundreds of millions of dollars to the Australian economy every year in production. So it was just always a rewarding, well, I was hoping it was going to be a rewarding project, not just financially, but for um, everybody, basically. So it was uh, developed so that we could go contracting, And to this day, I still have machines out contracting, but we sell primarily, we sell the machines to the farmers or contractors around Australia.
1: No, that's great. And that sounds like a really good business model too, because like you said, it's a good opportunity. I mean, not only are you doing some sales on the back end of your contracting, but you're able to, like you said, test out the product. And so if there's any issues with it, you're getting that direct feedback and it doesn't have to be translated through some third party customer. You're sitting there yep. using the machine yourself and you watch the issues with it and you give that feedback directly to the engineering team. That's just immensely valuable.
2: That's exactly right. Um, and that's, that's how it happened, basically, you know, because we were using them directly. And, and also, Philip, we were using them in many different circumstances or places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that simply because geology varies so much from place to place, um, we found that you know in one place, one version of the machine worked very well and in another, you know it had to be something different. So it really helped us by taking it to different areas and different situations. It helped us develop the whole machine um, over time. And um, we got it to a point where if it couldn't handle the rock and actually uh, do the job, you know um, give us the end result in a, in a crushed up soil, At least it wouldn't destroy the machine. So the machine would survive the contact with, with, say, we have a lot of granite over here, which is just too hard, basically. So the machine was still cost-effective without being damaged, if, if that makes any sense.
1: You're having to make this judgment call to say, do we incorporate a fix that will make the machine better and maybe it will make it more expensive, or do we just let this specific case go because maybe... It's not something that's essential to the success of the machine. How did how did you make those types of decisions?
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. It was it was tough, and 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 just going back a bit in the developing processes, there was many times that I nearly gave up um, simply because of breakages. You know, we were putting it through enormous. Um, um, we have very tough situations and the machine gets hammered all day. Right. So, yeah, we had lots of failures and lots of breakages and 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 I guess that's part of developing something from scratch is that you have to be ready for those and be aware that that's going to come along and that either you, you're going to push forward and, and make it work or you're just going to give up because essentially – um, there was always the possibility that the machine wouldn't work and then I was wasting my money. So, you know, there, there had to be a point where I said, well, you know, do I go ahead with this? And really, I'd made that decision quite early on I'd, and that kept me going.
1: There's all these questions that don't have concrete answers. There's, you can't Google the, uh, the, the answer to the things that are plaguing you. Um, so it's really difficult to have that faith to push forward. How did you dig to find that? No no pun intended. Yeah, it,
2: it was um, partly family-orientated. I had my eldest daughter working with me, and the fact that she was with me and out in the field developing it helped keep me going. And I think probably, Philip, the truth is also that I was in a good enough position financially to do it. If I was trying to borrow the money to do the whole thing or find support, it would have been much more difficult. Yeah. Um so, even though the finances were tight at times, we were able to um afford it without relying on you know other sources.
1: yeah, and you bring up a good point because a lot of times people get into product development because they see it as a way to get rich or to hit a certain financial goal. You know, did you find that the pressure was off of you a bit because you didn't set a lofty goal, even obviously you know you had the goal to change the Australian landscape, you didn't necessarily tell yourself that you have to make a certain amount of money by a certain date.
2: Not really, no. Um, And and I never expected the machine to be so popular and and so well accepted. In actual fact, I never, when I did that um, initial great design, I was never expecting it to work anywhere near as well as it did. So... Um, when I first saw it work, I was um, astounded, you know, and I was so thrilled that it was working as well as it did. Um, and it was only over time that I, I worked out that, gee, there's, there's going to be some market for this machine. Um, so I, I sort of came at it probably from the opposite end of most people, you know, in, the, in that I was, I was not doing it to make a lot of money but to – to um, solve a problem also and, um, and hopefully make some money along the way. I've been in business all my life, um, so that helps a lot. You know, I've had a lot of experience in, in running sort of a medium-sized business. And a lesson I've learned all along is that money or borrowing money is fine as long as you've got a good solid case to borrow that money. But borrowing money on something that is isn't yet proven you know, or is still quite out there, can be very dangerous. Um, and, and unless you can get the a support of somebody else, uh, if, if you need that money to come from another source, um, other than a financial institution, um, yeah, it, it's quite dangerous, I believe. I've seen lots of people come unstuck in that regard.
1: Yeah, you almost get into a gambling type situation where you're hoping that the money that you're borrowing is going to do something for your returns and you have these high expectations and like you said, if there's no business case for it, then the cards fall and you're left with a yeah. huge debt. Well, congratulations for doing what you did and taking it to the point where you have now because you've developed the product. Has the same firm that um, you've been working with done the manufacturing for the Refinator?
2: That's correct yes they they' manufacturing the refinators, they're building um approximately two a week um and uh yeah, we've built over a hundred machines there
1: oh, wow, congratulations, and you know, I have a soft spot for working at companies that do their own design and manufacturing because you get to go out in the shop and smell the welding fumes and the raw steel being worked on and the paint in the adjacent paint bay and see something take shape and like you said in a matter of days or weeks so it's really great to have that really close by so you can keep an eye on quality and an eye on making sure that the changes are incorporated properly into the manufacturing.
2: Yeah that's correct and, and, and that physical presence of a machine that, that appears out of steel and you know, bits and pieces is very rewarding. Um, and the most rewarding part for me now is is my clientele. They come to me and shake my hand. They're, they're thrilled to bits that there's a solution. We find that many of the older generation, they've been um, putting up with that rock for, you know, 40, 50 years, and they are just so thrilled to bits to, to um, see something that can um, solve the problem that um, they're excited and that excites me and it's very rewarding to um to uh, have that experience.
1: Yeah, it could certainly pull you out of bed in the morning. You mentioned that your customers are really excited about taking delivery of these units. Uh, talk a little bit about maybe your quality program. It's something that we didn't really talk about a lot on the show, but since you control the engineering and the manufacturing in the in-house, I suspect that you probably have some sort of a plan that says when you're done manufacturing, it needs to go through these set of tests, these factory acceptance tests or quality assurance tests, to make sure that it does the work that we designed it to do.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. We um, uh, initially it was a little ad hoc. It was it was check it after we've made it, and we found that that wasn't particularly successful because you know you've already spent the money. It's cost a lot of money to build the machine, so we developed another system where there's a a schedule and a checklist basically and each piece is numbered and that number relates to them and the person who's doing that job and not only do they have to check it off but so does the guy next to them when they both sign off on it so it's a ongoing through the every stage of the process and since we took on that system we've not had a problem so the guys are constantly checking themselves and checking the guy next to them simply because they have to and they know that it'll come back to them if if it fails and obviously with a machine like this it's in such severe conditions i mean the whole you know there's when it's fully ballasted it's over 20 to 26 tons and vibrates uh all day long if there's a fault somewhere it'll Fairly quickly
1: show up. Yeah, definitely, and I really like to hear that you've got some checks and balances. A lot of smaller companies, and I say that with deference because I'm sure that you consider yourself to be midsize or large. But um, you know, a lot of companies that aren't corporate companies with a lot of people that work there um, skip over this quality step because they feel that they don't have the time or the manpower to devote to it. But like you said, it pays dividends because one problem in the assembly line or in the manufacturing process will just magnify, and the, the worst thing that you could have is a customer calling you because the machines broke down uh, halfway across Australia, and now you've got to send a tech out to repair an issue at a much greater expense.
2: That's exactly correct, Philip, yes. You've hit the nail on the head. And also, the agricultural sector, and I assume, I think this is probably quite common across the world, because the numbers of people are actually relatively low, the communication is actually quite good between the farmers and the people in agriculture. So bad news spreads very quickly. Right. Uh, yeah. And good news spreads as well. So the last thing you want is bad news run around. So it's so important, particularly in ag here in Australia, to be putting out good stories so that they, or, well, you know, a good case so that there's nobody complaining. And um, generally, we've achieved that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. How are you able to spread the word? I know that you go out and do jobs with it and you do demonstrations, which I imagine is a, just a huge part of your marketing strategy, being able to demonstrate the benefits of your product. A lot of businesses don't have that benefit other than doing, you know, demos and stores and things. You're able to show tangible proof. What are some other tactics that have worked for you on the marketing side to really get the word out?
2: We find that the most effective method is the demonstrations simply mm-hmm. because it is so physical and, and visual. Um, I mean, you've got, it's very simple. You've got a big slab of rock and all of a sudden it gets turned into soil. So that that's very self-explanatory um the um, we actually find the um, you know the facebooks and the twitters and and all those very effective as well
1: that's interesting yeah you wouldn't think that since this is more uh, business to business than business to consumer
2: yeah yeah it's amazing and it, um, we've been surprised how you know our rock gone twitter or facebook has become you know those people that have that problem and have heard they it's just self-generating. I don't really understand how it works, but, but it, it developed quite a following. And um, as soon as we put something on there, people are straight onto it and, and responding to us. So um, we've even got an owner's group now in Facebook so that we can give them relevant information. And it's, it, it surprises me every day.
1: No, that's a great idea. And especially now that a lot of the social networks are prioritizing video, I bet you guys could do some really great work in taking one or two minute clips of, you know, sort of before or after of the you know, machine doing its thing, or even the process, some detailed steps of rock going through the machine and crushing it. I bet that would make some uh, shareable video that people would just kind of forward around and say, hey, check this out.
2: Yeah, and that's pretty much what we do. We, we've got videos, you know, YouTube and so on, and, and even just stills, you know, if you get the the before and after photos with the same background, and so people can see it's the same position. Because people like to see, don't they? You know, we can all listen, but the truth's in the seeing. So we find that to be the most successful
1: uh, marketing strategy. No, absolutely. Like you said, you rely on the on showing the benefits of the product, and the more tangible they are, you can kind of clear the slate, so to speak, and you don't have to worry about all the fancy uh, marketing. I don't want to say gimmicks, but tactics that some other people rely on. So good for you guys to focus on the demos. I'd be curious to see uh, when it comes to making sales, you know, and converting some of this marketing into uh, a sales lead, do you find that some farmers might be on the fence about purchasing the unit and do you ever do a little drive-by if you're one of your machines that ends up in the area, do you offer to work a bit of their land for free just to kind of show them the benefit?
2: Um. Yeah, we've done little bits like that, and quite often we'll offer to pick them up and bring them to the farm next door where we are working, um, or a client's working his machine. But you know, the truth is, if they've got the problem and enough of it, they'll want the machine. And it's how it works: we sell one machine into an area, and within you know months, if not a year, or then it's there's several machines in that area. I mean, this it's viral. Yeah. well, There's one patch in particular where there's 14 machines that all bounder, the farms or each other. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, congratulations on making such an infectious product. We've talked to other small business owners that have been on the show that had similar results from their product. And you can really tell uh, the, the people that have spent so much time refining their product and, and like you said in the beginning, editing it down. To its most simple, and by simple I mean effective and elegant design, uh, so it just works. Those are the the businesses that have some of the greatest successes because it, like you said, I don't want to say that it sells itself, uh, but it definitely gives you a huge boost in marketing.
2: Oh, that's correct. You know, and, and because it's the only machine out there doing it, um, it makes it. You know, obviously it's a very easy thing to market. We're not, we don't have competitors in in reality and um, that, that side of it is incredibly easy. Um, just getting there to the new areas is sometimes a little tough, like it's, a, it's not a cheap machine to move around. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be prepared to go out and spend the money to, to go to those new areas, um, especially when you start to go interstate. But um, it's always worth it.
1: Well, that's really great. So congratulations, Sim, for creating a product that's just had such great success. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask if you could give some advice to someone that's looking to launch their own product and they might be kind of struggling along the way. They might be in that dip that we talked about. What would you tell them to, to keep them pushing forward or to help them work out the questions that you can't Google?
2: Yeah, look, I think having a belief in the product is very important. But make sure you do your homework. Use someone else to say, "Is this practical? Is it really going to work? You know, is this business model uh, really truly worth um, continuing with?" Um, and and find a business partner. I think is is a big part too. If it's too big for you, don't go out and borrow the money. Find someone who's in the industry or got a lot of experience. But obviously, they've got to be careful. They've got to try and protect their, their ideas. But, um, you know, doing things on your own is incredibly tough. So business partners, good people. If you can, work with family business is the best way I can recommend it. They tend to have more compassion and are uh, more involved in the outcome. So, yeah, and, and borrowing money is a trap if, if you haven't got that security there you really do need security and who wants to mortgage the house on an idea that may or may not work
1: right yeah you don't want to roll the dice on that no. good tips there about finding a partner most of the time the people that we have on the show don't mention taking on partners because it's such a difficult thing to do it's you're getting into another relationship it's almost like marriage right on the business side where you're sharing expenses and you're counting on this other person to make decisions for, sure. for the business. Any advice on picking a good partner other than just finding someone in the in the industry that is knowledgeable, that maybe uh, is good at some of the things that you're not?
2: Yeah, look, it, it's, it's good, never going to be easy. Like I said, family business tends to be a bit more compassionate and have a bit more passion in their business but I'd definitely be doing some homework on them before I, you know, invited them in. But um, I think I was, I tried probably at least two other manufacturers before I went to these guys and I found they just lacked a lot of interest. You know, they weren't really that interested in, in helping. So I, as soon as I felt that little bit of negativity, I just walked away and went somewhere else. And, it wasn't until I hit these guys that I were keen. They weren't going to drop everything and help me at no cost. You know, obviously I was paying, but I could tell that they had, you know, ethics. That's, a, I think, probably critical in that they have the same sort of ethical ideology as you do, so that you're somewhere near the same field um, to start with, and that they're not just interested in the money. I mean, obviously, that comes first in business, but you do need to be very careful. But at the end of the day, if you don't share it, if you haven't got the resources and you don't go down the road of sharing or using, bringing other people in, you probably won't succeed in any case. So
1: You've got to take a risk.
2: That's correct. So you've just got to take a risk, and business is full of risks. There's no doubt about it.
1: Well, Tim, thanks again for sharing so much knowledge. I'd love to stop by. I wish that you guys were less than half the uh, world away so I could come by and check the machines out. Um, where can people go and find Rocks Gone and your Reefinator?
2: Yeah, rocksgone.com.au, and hopefully our new website will be up soon, and they can Google Refinator. You have a Refinator name in, in Canada, I believe. There's a, a, I think it's a kid's cartoon show. <laughs> but it's the only other reefinator name in the world that I know of. So, and we were first, which I'm most pleased. <laughs> nice. But, but uh, yes, rocksgone dot com
1: Tim, thanks again for coming on the show and being so transparent and sharing all your knowledge with us. So, I wish you all the best and your continued success. And you've obviously uh, are on a really great track. So, I hope you uh, take over Australia. <laughs> thanks, Philip. All the best. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Tim, so here are three of my takeaways. Number one, have a deep understanding of the problem that you're solving with your product. Tim understood just how difficult it was to farm rocky soils and he worked as a contractor solving new problems in different terrains every day. His confidence in creating his product stems from living and breathing the same pain as his customers. So he was able to make those tough decisions during the design process because he understood the impact of adding or removing a feature. Number two, set up a quality program no matter how small. Defects will happen, that's just how life is. The worst thing that we can do is force our customers to be our quality control. Implement a basic inspection checklist with sign-offs to start with. And if you've got a lot of units that you ship out, this doesn't always mean that you have to check every part of every product. Perhaps there's a final test of each product that will work. Number three, word of mouth advertising isn't just for B to C. It's interesting how social media works really well for Gone, even though they're not a typical consumer product company. So people who work in agriculture tend to be physically separated by broad distances and it makes sense that online social tools would be effective in bringing them together to share information. What other issues are our customers looking to solve and where are they going to find those answers? Isn't that where we should be marketing? If you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com and scroll to the footer of any page and sign up to the weekly wrap-up. At the end of the week, you'll get my three takeaways for each guest, along with interesting articles, free tools, and inspiring innovations that help you with your own product startup. If you have any questions or comments, as usual, I've put all the links that I've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash 39. And also, some listeners have asked me about alternate options to the one-on-one consulting that I provide clients. I've had some interest in a weekly group Q&A call where I would field office hours, so to speak, and everyone could just call in and ask some questions. I've had interest in a DIY product development book, as well as a training course on the same topic. So I'd really want to help you move forward with your products and take that action. And if you want to get into a beta test group on any of those options, just contact me through the site. We talk a lot about validating our target audience here, and I'm certainly not going to build anything just because other people online are doing the same thing. So if you have been struggling with getting your product going and you need some extra help, let me know. Join me next time as I speak with Diane Gardner. Her goal is to make sure entrepreneurs across the United States are paying the least amount of income tax that they can legally pay. And we talk about small business tax deductions. So tune in next week to hear that episode. I've set up a phone number for you to call and leave a question or feedback about the show. You can also pitch your product startup to the show audience. So leave me a message at 681 321 1115. And if you're going to pitch the product startup audience about your product-based business, please keep your pitch to 30 seconds or about the time that we would have to talk to somebody on an elevator. Don't forget to include the problem you're solving and the call to action, what you need us, the audience, to do for you. So thanks again for joining me today, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in to this
0: episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by MacO Design & Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to makodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.